Good to be back, guys. I hope you all survived the snowpocalypse. Uh, yeah, it was rough, right? This, this two inches are brutal. Um, so it's great to be back, and we're starting a new year. This is our third new year together, I think, because we started midway through the first year. So this is new in three and a half years. This is our third new year uh, together as a study, and I believe third, maybe four, I think third. Anyway, we are in the book of Numbers. We're going to begin the book of Numbers this year. Last year we did Leviticus. The year before that we did Exodus. And the year and a half before that we did Genesis. So it's only fitting that we continue. But the reason that we're doing Numbers, one, is because it's the next book. Two, is because Numbers picks up the story where Exodus left off. So if you remember, those of you that have been here, have been coming for a while, if you haven't, if you're new to this, all of these studies from Exodus all the way through to where we are today are available online on the YouTube channel for my ministry. So just go to YouTube, type Disciple Dojo, and they'll pop up. And you can follow along with the study. The point is so that if you miss a week, you don't get behind. You can catch up on your lunch break or whatever. They're also, the audio is available on the podcast. So if you go to iTunes, if you go to SoundCloud, again, just search Disciple Dojo, and all of the sessions are always online for free. So we make these available, and people around the world actually listen to them, which is kind of cool. Uh, I've heard from folks that follow this study as well. So when you come to Ruth's, and you know when you tell people about this, and when you bring your coworkers or friends, you're, you're supporting what we do. You're helping in a real way a worldwide ministry, uh, and you're also getting a really good free lunch as well. Uh, the food, those of you that are new, the food is free. It's provided by Ruth's. But as a way of saying thank you, we ask you to always leave a donation in the box. I don't get any of that. It goes to the kitchen staff who prepare this food for us. It's our way of thanking them. So people say, how much should I give? Well, give what you can. Give what you think it's worth. Uh, just, just know that it goes to bless the people who prepare the food that we get to enjoy. So be sure to get the word out and let people know that as well. Numbers. The reason that I'm excited, though, about studying Numbers, like I said, it picks up where we left off in Exodus. After the events of Leviticus, remember Leviticus, the whole book took place within roughly six months to a year, give or take. Like all of, all of Leviticus was directions. And if you remember the overall story of Israel, they came out of Egypt. They were delivered by this, this, this oppressive army and this evil ruler who was seeking to recapture them and take them back, to drag them back into slavery to Egypt that God had freed them from. And God brings them out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea, modern-day Gulf of Aqaba, over to Midian, where Mount Sinai was, where Moses was tending his flocks, which would be modern northwest Saudi Arabia. And he brings them to this mountain, and he gathers them around, and God's got tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of former Hebrew slaves, an untold number of a mixed multitude that came out with them, people like Caleb and his family. Uh, so he's got this rabble of people who have been enslaved for 400 years. Now we know, we, we're in a culture where we see the effects of enslaving a population for 400 years. We live with those ongoing effects. That, that affect entire communities and generational uh, struggles that result from even people who have been freed 
if there's not structures in place and if there's not clear leadership and if there's not um, uh, something given direction and focus and all these things, then it becomes very easy for people to, to drift, to be lost, to, to not have direction or to feel like well, we're still free but, but things are still hopeless or things still aren't good or, or to just be in this transition period that can go on for decades and decades and decades. And so numbers is it presents us with God taking this group of slaves who he's freed through an act of grace and saved, literally, that's where our, our Christian terms saved and salvation come from the Old Testament, from Exodus. He's saved them. He's redeemed them. Again, that language comes straight from the book of Exodus. And he's given them a new identity. And for this reason, Numbers is probably the most... Uh, the most used illustration in all of the Torah for how Christians are to live their lives today. I'll show you what I mean by that in just a minute. But when the New Testament authors want to make a point to believers, New Covenant believers, about how they should live, they draw imagery from Numbers. They don't draw it from necessarily Exodus, Genesis, you know, Kings, any of those things. I mean, they, yeah, they pull from those, but Numbers is kind of the bread and butter in terms of how God's people today, even under the new covenant, should see themselves. Because the story of Israel is the world in microcosm. Israel was to be the new Adam. Israel was to be the kingdom of priests. Israel was to be the means by which God reached the nations. Well, that's exactly where the church finds itself today. The church is constructed around the new Adam, Jesus. The church is the redeemed people of God. The church has been brought out of slavery to sin. The church has been given a mandate, a new covenant, not on Mount Sinai, but on the Mount of Beatitudes or on the Mount of Golgotha. And then they've been sent into the world to push back the forces of evil spiritually. Well, that's exact parallel to what the people of God in Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua are going to do. So Numbers is a book that tells Israel's story, but in telling Israel's story, Numbers tells our story. And this gets lost in Bible reading plans. You know, I know at least one person in here statistically has probably vowed to read the whole Bible this year, because that's usually how it works in the year's resolution, and read the whole Bible, and you get a reading plan. And about March, you'll quit. Uh, and it'll probably be because you get to Leviticus or Numbers, and you slow down, and your eyes glaze over, and you lose focus, and it doesn't become romantic anymore. It's not exciting. It doesn't give you the warm fuzzies. Well, that's what we're here for. We're here to help you through that. Because the book of Numbers is an amazing book. And before I ever taught it, I barely knew anything about it. And then I spent a year teaching it and was just like, this book should be taught by every church everywhere. Like, it's that important. There are themes in the book of Numbers. The theme I've talked about, transformation in the wilderness. In Genesis, think back to Genesis 1. God took chaos and disorder. And he went through these steps of ordering it. And there was repetition. There was evening, there was morning, day one. There was evening, there was morning, day two. God saw this, it was good. God saw this, it was good. God divided this from this. He called this, this, and he called this, this. It's this, this ordering of the elements of chaos into his order creation based around this whole Sabbath structure and, and the literary motifs that we've talked about back when we studied Genesis. Well, Numbers starts the same way. In a sense, Numbers is taking this chaotic group of people amassed around Mount Sinai. They have this thing now, this tabernacle, 
that all of Leviticus was about. They have this little portable Mount Sinai that's going to go with them everywhere they go. And they've got people that are going to be able to work it to be the buffer between God's holiness and their sinfulness. And so God's going to dwell in their midst even though they're a sinful people because He's going to use the sinful people to reach the world. They've got that. Leviticus set that up. But then Numbers is, okay, so what do we do? What about us? How's this all going to work? Because if you tell tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who have only known 400 years of slavery in Egypt, okay, now go be a people, you're going to get all kinds of chaos. There's going to be tribal allegiances, clan allegiances, family allegiances, infighting. It's just going to be chaos. And so God, into that chaos, God speaks in the first you know, six chapters of, of Numbers are all about God ordering this chaos. First six days of creation, God ordering chaos, right? There's, there's, there's a parallel to what happens in Genesis. It's not tight, it doesn't follow exactly, but it's a way of wrapping your head around the things that you read at the beginning of Numbers, which seems so boring. I mean, there's one chapter in Numbers we're going to get to, and we're just like, seriously, you could have said this entire chapter in one sentence, and it's stretched out to the longest chapter in the book. Well, there's a reason for that. There's a purpose in it. And it's not to bore readers in 21st century North America. There's a purpose for it that we're going to look at together. But the main purpose is it's transforming people into their new identity. God's ordering His people. There's another theme in Numbers, which is that God is is faithful to His covenant, His promise that He made with Abraham, that through His offspring, through His seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was the promise, back all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And that piggybacked on the promise to the offspring of Eve back in Genesis chapter 3, that that her uh, offspring would crush the head of the serpent. So there's this recapitulating promise that echoes down through the Torah, and we're getting to numbers where at the, at the, the climax of the book, or one of the climaxes of the book, the people of Israel, just like happened in Exodus, they're going to seemingly obliterate the covenant. Remember in Exodus, God gave them the covenant, and before the ink had dried, even though it wasn't ink, it was stone carving, but before the dust had settled, they broke the covenant by the whole golden calf and Baal worship incident. And and yet in an act of grace, God said, all right, I'm not going to abandon you. You deserve to be abandoned, but I'm not going to abandon you because I'm keeping this promise I made to Abraham. Well, now in Numbers, that's going to happen again. And it's going to be when they're on the cusp of entering the good gift that he's given them. So that they'll, they'll, there's a period where they'll, first they rejected the covenant of God when it was just a theoretical construct. And it was the, the Ten Commandments and the, the laws. And God kind of gave them grace. And then, but now they're going to come to a point where the fulfillment of this, all of this, is within reach. The land is right there. They actually get to send people into the land and check it out for you know, a, a, a good period of time. And then they reject that. And they not only reject it and say, we want something else. They reject it and say, we want to go back to Egypt. And they actually try to go back to Egypt. And they actually attempt to, or are going to attempt to kill Moses, the one who interceded for them at the Golden Calf Incident. The only reason they're still alive. And that's when you see God says, that's it. That's the final straw for your generation. And so that generation loses their salvation. I know that's dicey to say, but that's literally what happens. They forfeit. They don't lose. It's not like car keys where they can't find it. They forfeit. They give back their salvation to God and say, we want to go back to Egypt. And God says, 
well, no, you're not going back to Egypt, but you're also not going to enter the land. And that generation cuts itself off from the fullness of the people of God. The plan continues. God's salvation is going to happen to His people. But His people determine by their actions and by their obedience whether they're part of that people that gets to enjoy those blessings. And that has huge theological ramifications for today in the whole Calvinist, Arminian, predestination, free will debate. Because it kind of cuts right through the middle and says, yeah, God's people are predestined to glory. It's going to happen. But are you part of God's people? Are you on the train that's going to reach the station? And that's when God does allow for our disobedience to cut us off from the blessings that He's given us. Now, whether that means eternally and all of this stuff, save that for later systematic theologians. Numbers, though, provides the blueprint. Numbers provides the, the, the paradigm by which we view salvation. Um, God's sin cannot stop God's plan for His covenant people. Even their own sin can't stop His plan. It's going to happen. His people are going to reach the goal. The question is, though, it, or the, 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 what Numbers says is, but each generation must appropriate that for themselves. Nobody gets to the kingdom through the faith of their parents. It's an ongoing, and Ezekiel will harp on this later, much later in Israel's history. He'll flat out tell people this in, I think, chapter 18. Uh, what happens when you rely on the faith of your parents to get you in or to keep you in rather than have your own relationship with God. The last thing that I'll point out is how the New Testament, I mentioned it, how the New Testament uses numbers. If you have a Bible, which the Bible study, it's a good idea to bring a Bible. Uh, <laughs> And there's no excuse for not having one if you own a smartphone because you have every translation at your fingertips, literally. So download a Bible app, bring your Bible. Or there's two right up here if anybody wants to make the walk of shame. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but if, if people, you know, if you do need Bibles, uh, Greg always brings a couple. And, you know, I encourage you to bring it so you can see what we're talking about. But John chapter 3, we're going to look at some New Testament passages for the rest of the time that we have and maybe some next week. Uh, we're going to spend a year in numbers, so there's no hurry to rush through it. Might as well lay the foundation right. John chapter 3, this is a passage everybody knows. God so loved the world, he gave us, you know, the guy with the rainbow wig holds us up at football games. But look at what comes right at this passage. Look at John chapter 3 and look at verse 14. This is in this discussion with Nicodemus Jesus is having. Verse 13, he says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so, or in this way, loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now we read this as a New Testament Jesus say. Jesus is drawing from Numbers. The bronze serpent was made in the book of Numbers. And it was made after some rebellion by Israelites. And as punishment for that rebellion, God allowed snakes, the poisonous, venomous snakes that are all out in the wilderness there, to uh, all throughout the camp. And those snakes bit people. And people were dying because they were getting bitten by snakes. There was no CDC back then. There was no anti-venom vaccinations. You get bit by a serpent in the desert, you're probably going to die. And so what God does, Moses and the people cry out in repentance. And God has them make this bronze serpent, this, this 
bronze snake and put it on a pole and place it up in the camp. And the goal or the, 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 what God tells people is if you look to that pole, you're condemned already. There are snakes among you. They are biting you. You are dying as a people. Do you want to live? Look to this serpent. Look to this thing. Turn your eyes up and just believe. There's no magic. There's no rituals. There's no incantations. God is providing a free, graceful way for them to survive the judgment that they already stand under. That's exactly what Jesus patterns his own ministry after in the most famous passage in the entire New Testament. Did you know that it draws from the book of Numbers? A lot of people don't know that. It does. The audience knew this. Nicodemus knew this. He was a teacher of the law. He knew his numbers. So he gets that reference. Or 1 Corinthians. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here's another example. First Corinthians 10, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. These are Gentile believers, not Jews. Gentile believers. But as we've seen all throughout this study that we've done over the years, the Bible for the New Testament believers was the Old Testament. So they didn't memorize Ephesians. They couldn't quote Thessalonians. They had no idea what the Gospel of John was. It wasn't even written at this time. Their Bible was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the rest of the uh, Tanakh, the rest of the Hebrew Bible. So when Paul's writing to these Gentile believers who have now uh, become followers of Israel's Messiah, he wants to give them, he wants to, in Corinthians, he's, he's both encouraging but also warning them. Because they are living in the midst of an incredible, if you know anything about Corinth, it was one of the most incredibly depraved cultures in the Greco-Roman world. The verb to Corinthianize was a slang way of saying to be completely debauched, to be completely hedonistic. Corinthians, uh, first, uh, the city of Corinth was like Las Vegas, Bangkok, and Amsterdam's red light district all mixed together with a little bit of Mardi Gras thrown in. Right? It was, that's how sensuous and, and, and libertine it was in its behavior particularly in its sexual immorality and particularly in its mixing of sexual immorality with idolatry and worship. The two sex and worship, as we've seen in the Old Testament, the Canaanites did the same thing. Again, God's word speaks to every generation. So this is what he tells the Corinth. This is Paul's, uh, he says this in chapter 10, verse 1. For I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. That's the Exodus. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. This is the Exodus. And Paul says this was Israel's baptism. This was when Israel got saved. He's, he's drawing a parallel between Israel's experience in Torah and New Testament believers' salvation. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Messiah. And that references uh, in Exodus where there's water from the rock. And then later in Numbers, again, when they get to a whole other place, again, God provides water from the rock. So the tradition in the Jewish retelling of this was that the rock followed them. They didn't necessarily literally believe that the rock followed them. But it was a way of saying that wherever they were, God was providing them water from this rock. And Paul's saying, yeah, this rock was Messiah. This rock was the promised deliverance that God had brought his people. And that's what Jesus has done for us today. So he's making an analogy about their experience again. 
Nevertheless, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. That's from Exodus, golden calf. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. That's numbers. That happens in the incident with Balaam and the Moabites. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. That's the whole bronze serpent incident. By the way, snake handlers never use this verse, if you know, because uh, it completely undermines the whole idea of snake handling. But that's another story. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. In other words, you're not going to face anything new in your struggle, in your spiritual life. You're not going to face anything new. God's people have been doing this from the beginning. They've been in this place from the beginning. So Paul uses numbers to show the people you're in the same position. Different covenant, same position. Drawing from numbers, the imagery there. Let's look at one more before we call it a day. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. We usually don't flip around like this. Kind of the Charles Stanley method. Turn here, turn here, turn here. Uh, Because I'm just lazy. But this is good to give you an idea of, of how the New Testament uses, again, uses the imagery from numbers. Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews is telling his Jewish, largely Jewish audience, hey, this is what the goal is. This is what you've been called to. And again, like Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's going to give them a warning and it's going to be based on the imagery from the book of Numbers, from the situation of Israel in the desert. Look what he says, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. He's talking about Israel in the desert. And he says, you got to hear it, yeah, and you have to combine it with faith. you got to believe it. And we'll see in Numbers how they did the former, but they did not do the latter. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. And he quotes Psalm 95. So I declared my own oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now he's quoting Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is retelling the events of Numbers. So he's quoting, he's alluding to the events of Numbers by quoting the psalm in Israel's hymn book that talked about the events of the book of Numbers. So he says, and yet his work has been finished ever since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. It's a Genesis quote. And again, in the passage above, he says, verse Psalm 95, they shall never enter my rest. So there's a rest, there's a ceasing, there's a, there's a salvation and a fullness and eschatological relaxing is what we can long for rather than the daily tribulation and work and, and labor and all of the stuff that we live in. And he's saying God's prepared that and it's prepared for his people. But it's got to be apprehended through hearing and through faith, not just one or the other. 
So he says, verse 6, it still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. That's the numbers crowd. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it, quote, today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. He's explicating Psalm 95. He's, he's explicating the Psalms of how the Psalms are urging Israel to not be like their ancestors in Egypt or who came out of Egypt and to not harden their hearts and turn away from what God is calling them to, which is a life of obedience and faithful devotion. Don't harden your hearts. You can still enter his rest, the psalmist is saying, meaning that the rest is a future thing, not something that happened just in number or just in Joshua. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Whose example of disobedience? The people in numbers. This is, these are just a few of the instances where the New Testament authors look at the book of Numbers and they see it as this is the paradigm for where we are today. There's other passages. There's passages in 2 Peter chapter 2, Jude verse 11, and Revelation chapter 2. All of those mention Balaam and the idolatry that he lured Israel into. And we'll get to that in the book of Numbers where, where there was a prophet. He was a pagan prophet. He wasn't from Israel, but he was a prophet of God. I mean, he legitimately would hear and talk to Yahweh. And he eventually was the one who caused the downfall of that generation of Israel or, or, or caused an incredible punishment upon them by basically enticing or showing them how they could uh, be led astray. In other words, Balaam didn't try a front attack on Israel because he saw him. He said, God's going to bless him. You can't overcome him to the king that had hired him to be like a prophetic hitman against him. So he says, you can't overcome them, but here's what you can do, king. If you want to destroy these people, get them to turn away from their God on their own. Because if they do that, that protection that God has over them is gone. That's exactly what happened. So the New Testament authors, Peter, Jesus' brother Jude, and John, the author of Revelation, they specifically point to Balaam as a paradigm for how false teachers today will get people lured away from the gospel. They specifically used Balaam as an example because a false teacher is not going to come on, on the scene and say, hey guys, I'm a false teacher. Come here and listen to this new thing I'm telling you. you don't, it doesn't work that way. But turn on some of the Christian channels. Turn on some of the Christian radio. Listen to some of the false teachers. Listen to some of the prosperity heresy. What you hear is not, hey, there's a new thing. Come follow this new God. What you hear rather is, hey, let me show you a new way or something you may not have seen before on how you should follow this God. And it is subtly and sometimes not so subtly mixed in with idolatry. In our case, greed. Mixed in with the desire for financial well-being and, and for applause and for you know, adoration, adoration from the masses and all of this stuff, which is idolatry. The New Testament flat out says, watch yourself from greed, which is idolatry. So the, the whole Balaam saga in the later books of Numbers is again a paradigm for what we encounter as Christians today living at the same stage in our journey. The last thing, and I'm as an art major, I hate numbers. I hate math. I'm terrible at math. 
I, once you start talking about numbers and calculations, my eyes glaze over. I don't know how to use Microsoft Excel, and I never want to. Um, anything having to do with numbers is just not my thing. I have smart people in, their life, in my life who it is their thing, and I go to them when I need help with numbers, just as they come to me if they need help with Hebrew manuscripts or art um, or jujitsu. But the point is, the book, even the name, Numbers, isn't the book's name. That's the name that the Septuagint authors gave the book, the ones who translated it into Greek from Hebrew before the time of Jesus. They called it Numbers. But the actual name of the book is, if you open a Hebrew Bible and turn to the book, you won't find the book of Numbers, you'll find the book of Bamidbar. And Bamidbar literally means in the wilderness or into the wild. The word Midbar means wild, wilderness, rugged, area away from civilization and that's where numbers takes place the book of numbers is the story of israel in the wild the wilderness the wild is a place where god draws them to to bring them to a point of dependence on him sustains them through for 40 years should have only been a few months but because of their disobedience it became 40 years and prepares them then to be launched into their mission will change the world. So think about Jesus' ministry. Think about when he came on the scene. After Jesus went through his baptism, just as Israel's baptism through the waters, Jesus' baptism, he went the other way. Israel got baptized and they were in the desert and went into the promised land from the east across the Jordan River. Jesus gets baptized in the promised land in the Jordan River, and the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. And he's out there for 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted by the evil. He's redoing, he's going back to where Israel went off the rails, and he gets it right where they got it wrong. Because everything he quotes from that section of the temptation, every passage of Scripture he quotes is from Deuteronomy, the book that Moses gave Israel while they were right there getting ready to enter into the promised land. Jesus goes back, relives it so that he can then go back to and, and redeem Israel itself. That's what the servant, the servant of God was always promised that he would do, all the way back to Isaiah. So this is big picture theology. This is the story of what's going on. And so as we read Numbers, that's what we're going to see over this coming months of this year, is we're going to see Israel's story as a people being formed, being recreated from a rabble of slaves to God's marching army. That's why there's so many census lists and numbering of troops according to those who can go out to war. That's what it's all about. So, group of former slaves now becoming a tight-knit, military, regimented, fighting people of God. That, that totally would never happen in the ancient Near East on its own. Uh, unless there was something miraculous to bring it about. And that's what we have in Israel's story. So we're out of time. We'll pick up next week. We're going to talk a little bit more, some introductory remarks. We're going to look at chapter 1, which gets into the numbers. And we're going to see how numbers in Hebrew don't always work like numbers in English. And that's okay, because it's still God's Word and it's still inspired. So we'll see you next week.